Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Since the release of ChatGPT in November, artificial intelligence has shot to the top of public conversation. Already, generative AI software has demonstrated it can pass bar exams, write passable high school papers, but also generate fake reviews, phishing scams, and copyright violations on a staggering scale. Next, this AI may help cure diseases or create them. Lawmakers and regulators say they're going to roll out guardrails, but their track record reigning in Silicon Valley is, frankly, lousy. What can the rest of us do to ensure somebody's looking out for our welfare? That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. As big tech pivots to incorporate generative artificial intelligence into, well, just about everything, there's a lot the rest of us don't really understand about what's going on. We can see big shifts in the way people access information on the Internet, more visual, snackable, as Google has described it. But what's under the hood? How is this fast-evolving technology being used to control our behavior as consumers, entrench structural biases? in business, housing, healthcare. Alarming warnings from experts who do understand what's going on have led lawmakers and regulators to start talking about new laws and regulations. But you don't have to be an expert in politics to know those with the money to flood Washington, D.C. with lobbyists get a lot more say in how the sausage is made. Let's talk about it now with Jennifer King, Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Hi, Jen. Good morning, Rachel. Thanks for having me. And Ramon Chowdhury, responsible AI developer, leader, speaker, founder, and investor. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, Jen, let's start with you. What do people listening to this show need to understand about how quickly consumer-facing AI has changed in the last six months or so? (laughs) It's moving at light speed, which I think is one of the reasons why there's quite a bit of anxiety about it right now. I mean, one of the things you see routinely uh, are uh, scientists who've been working in this field for, you know, a decade plus, you know, saying things such as, you know, I didn't realize that we would kind of get to this point in such a short amount of time. 
And that's one of the reasons in the last month, uh, there was a kind of what we call the pause letter uh, that was signed by over 27,000 people in this field that was asking for a six month pause on the development of uh, AI because it is moving so rapidly. I'm just going to pause there and say 27,000 people in this field. I mean, like, again, you don't have to be a software expert to be alarmed by that. Ramon, before ChatGPT, how much was AI already a part of our lives? That's a great question. Um, you know, AI was already, and machine learning has already been integrated into many aspects of our lives and things that are quite critical to us. Um, for example, everything from making medical diagnoses to deciding who gets a kidney transplant to during COVID deciding who passed their A-levels in the UK and got to go to university. And as well as infamously uh, being used to, to do triage for uh, how COVID vaccines were being distributed and funding. So it, it is worth noting that yes, the generative AI revolution has been impactful, but AI and machine learning have been already a part of our lives for many, many years. Jen, I've been tippity-tapping over at uh, chat.openai.com just for yucks. I I asked, who is Rachel Myro? Because, you know, I'm kind of an expert. Uh, And right away, (laughs) I can spot easy errors, right? Rachel Myro is an American journalist who has worked in various roles in media, uh including as a radio host, yes, reporter, yes, and news director, new, yada, yada, yada. In this role, she oversees coverage of politics and government, new, and she hosts a daily radio news show called The California Report. Well, not for several years, really the better part of a decade. You can see where I'm going with this. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, this this technology, while you know seemingly very advanced on the surface, and certainly creates things that uh, make people marvel, um, is not accurate. And so, I think that's one of the key things to understand right now. And I think it's also one of the reasons why many of us in this field are concerned when we see the big platforms trying to roll out these features alongside their existing technology. Is that the results aren't necessarily going to be accurate. And you know we already have some real challenges right now with uh, issues like deep fakes and you know just kind of um, you know all sorts of mini- media manipulation online. And so adding uh, this technology to, let's say, search results, when you can't verify that the results are accurate, um, you know is, is really worrying, and it's not clear kind of how that's going to be handled at this stage. Ramon, for for the benefit of people who who might not be one hundred percent clear on it, are are there obvious benefits to to companies to to humans uh, with this this new form of artificial intelligence? Are are there reasons why everyone is running so fast into uh, fleeing into the future, as it were? Um, I. It's interesting you've mentioned two very distinct groups, right? Companies and society. Um, I think there is a lot of potential benefit for companies. I think there is a lot of money flowing in some very powerful circles that are funding, startups, uh, research, et cetera. Now, the question is whether or not that value is being trickled down into society. And this technology and its current iteration and its current level of exposure and understanding is really barely six to eight months old. Uh, 
I don't know if I've yet seen benefit to society as such. We've seen a lot of discussion. We've certainly seen some disruption. So for example, the current writer strike happening um, actually invokes chat GPT as one of the, the main issues uh, that they want to address, the use of artificial intelligence to you know, put people out of jobs. Um, I think you know time will tell, but I do think it's really critical that right now we ensure that these systems are being built by design to benefit society, because right now they are being built by design to benefit companies. You know, we, we've been talking so far about, you know, things that are, I guess you could call it on the humanities side, right? Uh, screenwriting or, or you know, simple Wikipedia style descriptions of people, uh, you know, uh, papers. But uh Explain for us some of the possible changes we might be seeing in in technology, in business. We're already seeing significant changes, in particular in engineering, programming, and coding. So there's a popular website called Stack Overflow. If you are an engineer, you are very familiar with it. It's where we all get our code. It's a community that discusses how to solve technical problems. That has been used to train uh, generative AI models that help write code, write code. So there is actually a very real concern in technical communities that some degree of programming and coding will not be necessary anymore. What I find fascinating in some of the evaluations of GPT-4, that's the technology behind chat GPT, actually is that it does pass things like the law exam, medical exams. It does also pass a lot of scientific tests and coding tests. What it doesn't particularly perform very well on was uh, AP level English. So I think ultimately where it will struggle is in high level creative fields, not actually in deep technical analysis. But Jen, do I want my doctor to be generative AI or do I want a human being? <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting question. And so, you know, you can think about whether we replace functions with AI or whether we augment functions with AI. And I'll give a very quick example, which is you know, one of the early applications of AI has been looking at x-rays, for example. So, you know, if you had or if your doctor used a tool um, that has been trained on mammograms in order to spot breast cancer, you know, the question I think comes into whether a tool like that is very useful as like a first pass for a radiologist to, you know, be able to spot a potential breast cancer, or, you know, do you want to actually delegate that decision-making to the AI completely? And, and a lot of uh, the discussions right now, I think you, we see this mirrored across industries that there's this concern that instead of using it to augment jobs or to augment specialties uh, or expertise, that instead we just may wholesale replace entire functions with AI. And, you know, the, the lower skilled the job, I think, the greater the concern. But even if a highly trained medical professional, you know, I think there's questions about whether that type of technology would be used to help or to replace. And of course, in this healthcare system, I think it's worth being concerned, given that we're always looking to save costs um, in ways that don't always benefit consumers. Ramon, I mean, what Jen just said, right? Like, I, if you're a company, you're going to say to the public, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we've got humans overseeing all of this. Um, but, you know, on the inside, I imagine you'd be, you'd hire as few people as possible, spread as thinly as possible uh, to, to make sure that you, you weren't moving fast and breaking things. Oh, did we lose you, Ramon? Nope. Sorry, oh. I'm here. Uh, it's yeah. it's a model. It's just not a sustainable model. Uh, I do think there's a lot of excitement and hype even around 
the kind of work that could be made redundant with these systems. Again, we are in very early days. These systems are still producing, as you've pointed out, hallucinations, which is sort of fabric, uh, confident fabrications. They're still uh, replicating social and cultural biases. You know, we're still not at a stage yet where these are ready to go and frankly, ready to make consumer facing products. There is a level of regulatory risk and reputational risk that runs with all AI systems. And we've seen this before. We saw the same narrative six, seven years ago when AI and uh, and deeper machine learning really came to the forefront. We've, we've already seen this movie. We saw how it ends. It ends with us realizing, oh, wait, we actually do need people. So let's imagine now that we've we've dialed up Lena Khan uh, over at the Federal Trade Commission, and uh, uh, she's interested in getting your input on what she should be thinking about uh, from a regulatory perspective. Uh, Ramon, what would be your, your top uh, concern that you'd want to share with her? Right now, it would be ensuring that what is being promised is what's being delivered. And I appreciate that the FTC has taken that perspective. Um, I think we need to move beyond what is possible in a demonstration or in a laboratory setting and really start to test what is the difference between research and product. I do think that there's an increasingly gray area and a slippery slope between what is released using the words research but then ultimately sold and built as products. Um, that would be my, my, my top concern at the moment. The second would actually be impact on consumers and the perpetuation of harms, uh, as well as stealing data and information. And again, I'm going to reference the, the writer's strike. There is a, a concern that intellectual property and things that people have built and shared on the internet uh, are being used unfairly to train these systems. Jen, does that sound about right? Yeah, and... So I think part of the tension right now is we're trying to map out what existing law covers and then where we might need new regulation. And even just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lena Khan, along with uh, the director of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Department of Justice and the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, um, sorry, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, all released a statement basically saying, you know, there are existing laws on the books that protect consumers and protect society. And so that is true. Um, but I think part of what we're at the stage we're really at right now is trying to figure out what else we might need. What else we might need. We are talking about laws and regulations to regulate AI with Jen King and Ramon Chowdhury. Stay with us and join the conversation. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, talking about regulating artificial intelligence with Jennifer King, Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, and Ramon Chowdhury, responsible AI developer, leader, speaker, founder, investor. And let's add a new voice to the conversation, Ben Zhao, Professor of Computer Science and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Chicago. Uh, ben, thank you for being here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, you, you, we were talking about an imaginary conversation uh, with Lena Khan over at the uh, Federal Trade uh, Commission. What would you want Lena to, to worry about f- first and foremost as, as she begins to address this challenge? Um, I actually just want to second what Ramon has already mentioned. I think she hit most of the points really head on. Um you know, one of the big concerns, of course, is uh, misappropriation of training data um, against copyright without consent from a number of creative uh, industries for some of these models to be trained on. Um, so that's that's something that's really forefront on my mind. And something else that I think can be added to that list is also just, you know, putting more clear restrictions on what these um, AI models are good at and what they actually should be used for. So I think that's, you know, I think Ruman also touched on this as well. There's a big gap between what they're designed to do, which is in large part to generate seemingly realistic human-like speech um, and how they're being used, which in part, uh, in large part actually includes um, managing and supplying knowledge um, to its users. And that second part, uh, the management of actual concrete knowledge is something that they're not designed to do, and they fail fairly badly at. Um, you know, you mentioned that at the very beginning of the segment with uh, its sort of incorrect uh, information about what you do, and I'm sure that everybody has a similar kind of experience when they ask ChatGPT about who they are. No doubt. Uh, Jennifer King, I, I know we kind of cut you off there as we were rolling <laughs> into no the break. Uh, you know, a- any any additional thoughts you want to add? Like, what what is your topmost concern when it comes to people who are just beginning to address this question of how to regulate AI? So as a privacy scholar, you know, I worry a lot about privacy. And so for me, that really focuses on what as Ben was just mentioning, kind of the inputs to AI systems. And so we're kind of in the middle of working through copyright issues, but we're also seeing privacy issues come up. And for those of you who've been following the news on this, chat GPT was banned in Italy for about three and a half weeks by the Italian DPO. Uh, They've since been reinstated, but they basically used the European privacy law, the General Data Protection Regulation, in order to force uh, OpenAI to make some very specific changes. And this, I think, is just the very beginning of that trend. We're going to see more of that, as well as just a huge reckoning over what types of data are being crawled, for, in in particular for these large language models, um, as well as the types of generative AI that use images. This is not as much of a concern if you're thinking about very specific kind of industry applications of AI. Uh, And then another big piece of this is looking inside the so-called black box. How do we audit these systems? And that, that is a big piece of the puzzle that I think is not covered by existing law. And is one of the things that we really need to understand in terms of how, who's going to be auditing, who gets access, what types of expertise, and also making it possible for 
uh, academics and researchers to get access to data. And that's a huge issue right now as well. Listeners, I know you've got concerns. Uh, Give us a call and join the conversation. The phone lines are already lining up, but if you call now or pretty darn soon, you might be able to get on the show before we close at the end of the hour. So 866-733-6786. Once again, 866-733-6786. You can also, I should mention, email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. The handle is KQED Forum. Uh, why don't we go to the phones then? And our first call from Rena in Oakland. Hi, Rena. Hi. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Um, So I'm a product design leader and I've been working in uh, social media platforms um, in the health and integrity space. And my question is really around AI and misinformation and the spread of misinfo. And it's more of a, a, not only a a technical question, but also a, a ethical question of, have we been thinking about how to track in the code or in the back end, what is AI produced versus not? to better support and enable tech platforms, comp platforms, news outlets, et cetera, to be able to differentiate and, and surface that in a more technical manner. So that's the first part of my question. And the second part is, um, like, regulations is great, and I'm glad it's finally here, but it is a lagging uh, uh, infrastructure. Um, and so I'm just wondering in terms of timing, how much of a priority and acceleration there is on regulation right now with AI. Ben, do you want to tackle that? Um, sure. I mean, I think that's a that's a fantastic question. One of the biggest problems with, of course, these kind of tools is how absolutely convincing they are at producing misinformation and making it extremely difficult for human beings to distinguish real information from misinformation. Um, and, you know, I have to say there, there are no good solutions right now. Um, generative models and, and AI models in general have this property that they are able to patch on and learn from whatever artifacts that you use to distinguish their last round of output. Uh, so this really is that Terminator 2 sort of model that adapts um, as you find chinks in its armor. Um, so that's a problem. So one solution is to say, that OpenAI and other companies that develop these models should voluntarily put in watermarks into these models in such a way that their content that's been produced can have subtle signatures that can be voluntarily detected by others who know what to look for. Um, that has been proposed. I have not seen any response and I am skeptical that they will be willing to do such a thing, but that would certainly help tremendously. Um, but yeah, that would be the start. Uh, Jen King, I mean, you know, uh, Rena has a real point here. Uh, regulation in D.C., new laws from Congress, uh, these are typically a dollar short and a day late, right? You know, like, like is, it, is it realistically impossible for, uh, for D.C. to step in and do what needs to be done? You know, it's not impossible. <laughs> it's never impossible. <laughs> but will it happen? Uh, so, you know, we saw legislation proposed last year, uh, the kind of the rise or the meteoric rise of um, ChatGPT and other generative AI have really kind of turned on the burners. 
So uh, I know Senator Schumer's office is leading on this issue and trying to get some regulation. He's still it's still being hammered out, um, but trying to propose this something this year. I think the question just remains whether we'll see a bipartisan agreement on it. I would argue that in addition, you really can't do this without also passing privacy legislation, which we also had proposed last year at the federal level, very bipartisan bill that looked quite promising. Uh, it hasn't yet been introduced. But again, even though if there is bipartisan agreement on these issues, um, you know, right now we're we're playing, you know, chicken with the debt limit. So that ends up kind of drowning out everything else. And then who knows what happens after that. And, uh, you know, as, as previously mentioned on this program, there's the question of, of big tech lobbyists uh, getting in there into the guts of a lot of the legislation, either killing it or softening it or, uh, you know, all kinds of potentially or bad outcomes, right? Possibly baking in some system that benefits companies, but not so much real people. Um, so, so I guess my question for you is: uh, What are you most afraid of passing uh, in Congress uh, that might make things very bad for for the quote unquote rest of us? So. I mean, I think one of the things that I find particularly frustrating uh, about our model in the U.S. is that we you know, usually pass legislation with no provision to revisit it, um, which I think is just doesn't make sense to me on the face of it. Our European colleagues are in the process of their what's called the trilogue negotiations uh, on their AI legislation, which I believe will be passed or completed by the end of this year, if not early next year. Uh, and you know they generally revisit these issues after five or so years. Uh, so my concern, yes, is that we pass something that just doesn't withstand the task the test of time. And of course, we do have several laws in the books, you know, going back as far as the 80s. Uh, that regulate different forms of technology that you know are now quite outdated. And so, uh, it just never makes sense to me why we don't have a either a sunset provision or, you know, tag something that basically forces us back into the room, you know, five or plus 10 years in to renegotiate and to rethink these issues. So that that to me, I think, is my bigger concern that anything we pass just gets put on the table and then or on the shelf and that we don't come back to it. But we, we do come back to it in a way with the courts, don't we? Sure. Yes. Um, and, you know, then you end up with, uh, you know, people make fun of Congress for not understanding technology. I think you can probably have the same conversation about judges and right, you know, so then you end up with, you know, interpretations of tech that sometimes just also don't make sense. And I think that's the other concern is that we have a lot of folks in government right now who really don't understand technology. And I would say that's one of our biggest Kind of societal-wide issues is the kind of recruitment and the building up of our tech stack from a government level, which I think has been extremely uh, not a priority over the last few decades. Ernst writes, I hate the term AI as it's not intelligence, it's a probability engine. It generally recommends something completely incorrect with great confidence. Spending my time trying to figure out what bugs it will introduce wastes more time than trying to find the bugs in normal code. Uh, I'll just let that comment stand. Let's go to the phones again and Kevin in San Francisco. Hi, Kevin. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. So, yeah, I actually um, decided to do a little quote-unquote interview with ChatGPT um, and set in a bunch of prompts, and I started out with um, Aristotelian poetics because of the idea of ethos. And, of course, ChatGPT said it doesn't have an ethos or morals or, or an ethical uh, core, 
but it did admit that because it's, it's um, trained on human-generated language that it will reflect the cultural values of the language it's trained on and is actually prone to um, actually prone within that to stereotypes and to biases that are already baked into that human-generated language. So, so the data sets it's trained on matter a lot. Um, and, and I mentioned to ChatGPT that there are a lot of people who don't get on the Internet or don't digitize their language, so isn't that a big limitation about what can be part of the language model? And ChatGPT said, yes, we have to find ways to get more people to be able to generate language. But my question is, if more and more people use ChatGPT output to actually write blogs and do things on the Internet, won't ChatGPT just sort of be eating its own tail? Won't it be just taking output that it's already capable of and that will become the new input? And so, therefore, it might, you know, flatline a bit in terms of its ability to become stronger because it's not looking at human-generated language. It's looking more at its own generated language. Ramon, you want to take that one on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in short, yes, uh, I, I think there is an eating its own tail concern here. Uh, I'll also add that, you know, ChatGPT and its ilk don't necessarily write particularly deep, insightful, and thoughtful things. It writes at sort of a an average middle schooler level, which is fine for most instances, but correct. Uh, and also even back to this concept of misinformation, you know, we will be flooded, absolutely flooded with very mediocre takes on many, many things. I actually also long-term worry about the quality of information that's going to go to feed into these models. I'll add that these companies spend a lot of time upfront cleaning the data. Usually it's meant to clean for toxic and hateful speech, but I wonder if cleaning for quality is going to be a part of how future models are trained. One listener writes, uh, it's a bit too late to wring our hands about something already released into the wild. I think there's some argument about how widespread AI is in this sense, but effectively it's happening in real time, literally. So trying to nerf it will inevitably fail. Uh, Jen? Well, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think it depends on what we're talking about. And if we're concerned about the use of any form of AI within uh, consumer products or, you know, industry writ large, I mean, yes, but this is a very broad field. There's a lot of diversity in what it's applied for. You know, mostly what we've been talking about are the things that are getting the most attention and the most hype right now. Uh, but, it, you know, it, just because a company is using AI, you know, somewhere in its tech stack doesn't somehow automatically mean that, you know, we're going to run off the rails. I mean, I think this is where trying to piece through these conversations and to realize that we're often talking about a very small piece of this puzzle and there's a much broader swath. But at the same time, it also raises the question of, you know, how upfront companies should be uh, in telling us that they're using this technology and to what extent should all AI be regulated, you know, versus these more kind of edge cases that we've been talking about so far? Ramon, I, I know you've just got a few more minutes with us before you have a hard stop at 940. So I, I, I just want to take it back to Washington, D.C. You know, we have we have seen uh, lawmakers in particular just fixate on on individual companies, you know, or or maybe fixate on China or fixate on, um, uh, you know, child safety in, in one form or another. Uh, these tend to be perhaps the only uh, areas of concern that can bring enough uh, lawmakers together from both sides of the aisle to start considering solutions. Uh but but I, I guess I worry that that's just not going to be a good frame to go at AI 
laws uh, with. Right. And so there's an interesting meta level discussion here um, of of the institutions we have and how our governments are built and how that changes our ability to regulate. We see, uh, you know, the, the history of how regulation happens in Europe being very different of how regulation happens in the U.S. So the concern in the U.S., as you've mentioned, is that, you know, we are going to only focus on particular aspects of it. Well, that is because usually we have particular agencies with a remit for certain protections. So the FTC, as the name kind of implies, you know, has to do consumer protection. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has to focus on finance. So the reason we end up talking about issue-specific harms is that that is generally how most regulation is structured. Uh, the other part I'll, I'll, I'll point to, as you've mentioned, there's a focus on, on companies. And, and I, I agree. I, I think that's that's a bit of a red herring. Yes, these are currently the most powerful and influential companies. Five years ago, the group of folks who met with the president last week would have been totally different. So let's instead talk about the impact of these technologies writ large, rather than focus on a few giants. The last part I'll add to that is there is increasingly a conversation about the value and the power of open source technologies. Last week, there was a memo leaked, an internal memo from Google that pretty much said that essentially these, these large companies have no moat, meaning that there is nothing to protect them from open source actors who actually move faster and more, more nimbly and agile uh, to overtake them in the future. So it would be a fallacy to try to regulate Google or OpenAI or Meta or Amazon, and in, and not then focus on the the realm of technologies itself, as well as thinking through what does it mean to bring things into open source. I want to kind of bring it back full full circle to what Jen had said earlier about increasing regulation around transparency and access. In my opinion, this is going to be the next big forefront that we will have to tackle. What does it mean to give meaningful transparency and oversight to well-meaning actors versus people who will use that access to violate privacy, security, and intellectual property? And I'm curious to see how that plays out. Bam, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, well, R Ramon Chowdhury, I want to thank you for coming in and talking with us today. Uh, and also uh, remind listeners that we're talking about regulating artificial intelligence with Ramon Chowdhury. Uh, Jennifer King, Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And Ben Zhao, Professor of Computer Science and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Chicago. Join the conversation. We've still got a few minutes to go at 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal, and we are talking about regulating artificial intelligence, the challenge, the opportunity, uh, with Jennifer King uh, of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence and Ben Zhao, professor of computer science at the University of Chicago. Uh, let's let's dive right back into it. Um, Jeff writes, this ban is a bad idea. Uh, Jeff, we're we're not talking about a ban uh, because the bad guys will ignore it. You want Vladimir Putin to end up with the world's best AI. Uh, Ben, I I guess it's fair to say this this horse has left the barn and jumped on a spaceship and is now uh, headed to to the outer rings of Saturn, is it not at this point? Um, you know, that's funny because I, I think a lot of people are using the whole China AI as a talking point to motivate political cause. But I, I think it's a really obvious red herring here. So um, what's interesting is that China actually, I think was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, actually issued their own set of regulations around AI. And they have been far more restrictive around AI than what the U.S. Uh, regulators are trying to think about. Um, so it's I- ir- ironic that you know people are saying, oh no, you know China or or Russia is going to go and and have the best AI, but in reality, China is the one going. No, no, AI can do lots of bad things. Let's you know pull back and and beware of the safety issues. So yeah, no, I I don't think that's a real concern, um, I, or it's certainly less of a concern. I think it's much more of a political talking point than anything else. I I do think that there is an issue of perceived inevitability of AI. And I again, I would dispute that. I think if you look historically at technology and what's, you know, been transformational, um, oftentimes people think it is inevitable and there's no coming back. But if you just look back, what, a couple decades when we had peer-to-peer systems and music sharing was rampant and, and musicians were losing their uh, right to their work um, and copyright infringement was rampant, you know, people thought that was inevitable, and yet somehow that was gone, uh, and that's been regulated out, and that's been uh, handled by court cases and, and the law. So there's already precedent. We we can manage technology. Nothing is inevitable as it seems. Uh, you know, Jen, I'm, I'm thinking of that op-ed that Lena Khan of the FTC wrote in the New York Times last week. Basically, she was arguing, hey, we've already got laws on the books that we need to go after people who are bad actors. Uh, they're just using generative AI as as the tool. But, it, you know, it, if there are other laws being broken, that's enough for us. We, we're, we're good to go. Uh, thoughts about that? Right. Yeah. First, I want to back up exactly what Ben said. Um, China, in fact, has a very stringent data privacy law <laughs> that we still lack. Um, so he's he's spot on about that. Um, yeah. And this and this is what I was referring to a little bit earlier. I mean, we we do have existing law that we can use, and the FTC in particular, when we're talking about the consumer sector sector and specifically, you know, there the FTC is empowered to take action against deceptive and manipulative trade practices. So. 
you know, if you are a company that is advertising that your AI product does a certain thing and then it doesn't actually do that, I mean, yes, the FTC can absolutely go after you. Uh, we have, you know, fair credit reporting laws and such. So if you have a credit agency that's using AI, you know, then, you know, that with that's within kind of the wherewithal of the law to also look at how credit is being decided and whether those decisions are fair. I think there's kind of two pieces of the puzzle, though, that are really tricky. Um, one is, again, trying to regulate what goes into these systems. And that's where I think we have one of the biggest gaps in the US. Um, I think Ben, again, is right, is cop that copyright is going to be a tool there. I would say that data privacy legislation, to the extent we have in the US, will also be a tool. We do have two of the strongest laws in the books here in California. But even so, I'm not sure that's going to necessarily impact precisely you know, what data is being used by these companies to train their models. But the other piece of the puzzle that I think is going to be tricky is explainability. Uh, we actually have pretty strong explainability requirements, both here in California with our privacy law, uh, and there are certainly, I think, explainability requirements potentially looming uh, at the federal level with the FTC if in the longer term. And this is a piece where I think we really, and I, you know, I'd love to hear Ben's take on this too, that I just, it's really difficult to see right now how we're going to get these systems to provide sufficient explanations, especially at a consumer level where I can actually understand why I was denied credit or why this system had this data in it or you know, where I can find my personal information and get something that actually empowers me and gives me some idea of choice or you know, understanding like what could I do differently so that my data isn't included in these systems. That I think is going to be a huge hurdle. And then finally, resourcing. You know, the FTC does have, as do other agencies, a lot of kind of quivers uh, in there. Uh, now I just forgot the word for where you store arrows, <laughs> arrows in the quiver. It's arrows in the quiver. Yeah. Arrows in the quiver, apologies. Um, but they need resources in order to work on that type of enforcement. And the FTC is a famously under-resourced agency. And so, you know, work, they're still, I think, between a rock and a hard place, whether, yes, they have the tools, but can they actually go out and, and you know, find the bad actors at the scale they may need to? That's, I think, a real question. Now, Ben, I, I know it sounds like Jen tossed the ball to you, but but I want to toss the ball back to our, our listeners and uh, one of our callers now, Michael from Sunnyvale. Hi, Michael. Yeah, How's... my question is why... Um, we're not using what already exists. Back in the 1940s, science fiction author Isaac Asimov wrote a set of three laws for robotics, but they don't seem to have been implemented by anybody. I mean, AI is not actually intelligent. It's just software. It's code that somebody wrote. Um, and as a retired career software quality engineer, my job was always to go and find the bugs and point them out. And it seems since these concepts of, you know, not doing any harm, obeying what humans say and looking after the, the, their own existence, provided it doesn't interfere with rule one and two, these have been around for, you know, 70, 80 years, and yet we don't seem to be using them, and we should be. Uh, well, you know... Uh, that's a great question, Michael, uh, or a great comment. Ben, it, it does seem right. Like, 
like we, we have ethics, ethical considerations that could be, you you know, for for in recent decades, for millennia, that could be used to to guide us as, as we roll out AI. But uh, these don't seem to be as much of a topic of conversation as perhaps they should be. Um, you know, I, I, I sympathize with you. I, I'm right there uh, with, with references to some of these uh, classical things. Um, the problem is that in order for you to get to a point where you talk to uh, about, you know, rules of law and, and laws governing robots and so on, you have to even assume that, that, that there is something to be controlled. And I, I understand that there's a lot of hype right now around what AI is able to do, but it is not sentient. There is no will. There is no, uh, you know, it, it, think of it right now as a lot of very powerful people um, building technology that can do certain things and they're overselling it. And, and that's really where we are right now. It's not that we're nowhere near the robot apocalypse, you know, but it really, the harms that are being done to our society today and many industries are more from how these tools are being used. And used properly, we can really minimize a lot of this damage. Um, ChatGPT is good for certain things. It's just not good for everything uh, that is marketed to be right now. And that's really something that we can mitigate uh, fairly quickly. Um, but it, you know, it's something that the market demand uh, forces us against, and that's, that's the issue. That's a that's a perfect summary, Ben, and and one I dare say, Chat GPT could never come up with. <laughs> uh, Martin writes, uh, if I can't trust an AI to drive a car in anything but the most ideal circumstances, why should I trust AI to guide me through something more complicated like vaccine design or distribution? We'll just let that question stand, though, uh, because I want to get to the next caller, Mark from Mountain View. Um, hello, yes, I'm a software engineer, and I am not the least bit worried about the AI coming to get my job. In fact, I cannot wait to work with AI uh, assistant. Together with AI assistant, I will, will always be better than, much better than me myself, and also better than the AI alone. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. So, Jen, it sounds like like Mark is on board with something you mentioned earlier that that AI uh, software can can augment human labor. Uh, you know, it, 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 that it it does have a place at the table, if you will. Right, and so there's been, I think, a lot of interest. And Ruben talked about this earlier before she left too, uh, with you know, Copilot, which is the kind of AI-assisted coding tool. Uh, I think one of the issues, though, that's still to be worked out in that space um, really goes back to copyright and you know whether we can kind of confidently say that we can use these tools based on the fact that you know um, GitHub created that by kind of scraping their entire repository of code that people have contributed. And so um, you know, I think that there are probably companies that are reluctant right now to let their employees use those in the office because the copyright concerns of integrating code that may actually be traceable back to maybe not a large company, but somebody who you know, may engage with a copyright claim uh, are still very uncertain. But ultimately, I mean, I do think that is, is, a, is a very good use case. 
That's a, a beautiful uh, point. Uh, thank you again, Mark. Uh, let's just read one more comment here. Uh, Barb writes, I'm concerned about being left behind in the AI world. There's a cost factor to access AI, and the learning to use AI feels overwhelming. How to feel safe in the AI world without understanding how the technology is gathering data about me and exploiting my creative works. Scott writes, this topic is so important. My opinion is any AI generated content must be prominently labeled as such with strong penalties for non-compliance with reference data sets listed too. Especially for any content distributed in the public domain. Would love to hear panelists' comments, but don't <laughs> comment just yet, dear panelists, because I want to share with listeners that this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, please go to kqed.org. I'm Rachel Myro. Well, we've got time for at least one more call, <laughs> so I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk to uh, oh, he has disappeared. <laughs> Sorry about that. Let's go next to Paul in San Francisco. Hi, Paul. Hello. I think the key term in artificial intelligence is the term artificial. Real intelligence comes out of the cranium. And I think we got to teach children in school to be critical thinkers and to understand that artificial intelligence is indeed a tool and as uh, one, of your, uh, one of your guests there said, it's, it's how you use the tool. Well, we really got to teach children how to use artificial intelligence and to think on their own. Beautifully put. I mean, Jen, I, yeah, we've got to think about uh, all of this. I, it really upends a lot of the way that our, our public education is structured today. Sure. I have two kids. Um, you know, my older son uses... Google Classroom as a routine part of his uh, kind of workflow in the public schools here in Berkeley. I often worry that he'll never learn how to spell <laughs> because, you know, when you're using Google Docs, it always auto corrects for you. Um, but yes, I mean, and, but I will say as a parent, I can tell you that the kind of media, media literacy curriculum that I think we need and computer literacy curriculum really doesn't exist or exists in little bits and spurts, and it's certainly not universal. Um, and we could have a whole show probably just on that topic alone. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> Note to the foreign producers, <laughs> that topic next, uh, generative uh, AI in education. Let's take another call. Thank you again, Paul, for that. Daniel in Vallejo, join us. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I'm just curious what uh, the hosts think about um, you know, the AI generated music and, you know, kind of being able to use anyone's voice or anyone's content. Well, meanwhile, a real artist, you know, is getting sued in courts for using a riff that happens to be similar to another. Uh, that's a great question, Ben. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> we don't have the amount of time for me to talk about that. I mean, I've, I've spent the last six months or so of my life basically trying to help artists escape the same fate where you have artists who've been toiling away for decades, honing their craft only to be turned around one day and within the span of, you know, 10 minutes, someone else can take their own, take their art from that artist and basically teach a model to generate random mimicries from that artist style. And then they can basically post that online. And in fact, if you go online today and if you search for some artist names, chances are the artist works that you see return as 
you know, back from Google are not are not real. Um, many of these AI art things are now polluting the landscape and making it very difficult to understand what is human art and what is, you know, sort of mimicries of, of this content. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely a thing. And in fact, there's much more to this. Um, if you if we do not take a stand and do not protect human creativity, you know, the, the darker side of this is that within a couple of decades or even less, uh, we will have no more human creative industries because AI model, one, thing's, one thing that it's really good at doing is decreasing cost. And so as, you know, human artists and aspiring artists are basically exiting the industry because they see no future for them to make uh, a decent living. What that means is that we're going to be stuck with AI art and, and that's all it's going to be. Um, and there won't even be human future artists to better train it with real human content. It will be today's AI art and nothing more. Well, that leads to, to my last question, really for the two of you. But, Ben, you could start off. I mean, in the absence of federal regulation or legislation or or perhaps imagining that uh, that either one could come largely written uh, to the tastes of the CEOs of Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, and others, what can the rest of us do to protect ourselves in in this brave new world? One one is I think what the writers are doing right now, which is to to unionize and and to negotiate terms of work uh, with you know companies and studios. I think that's fantastic. The other is that. AI can actually push back against AI. So what I alluded to, you know, the last six mon- months of my life have been spent developing tools, AI tools that basically push back. So we have a tool called Glaze, where basically artists can apply it to their own art such that if their art then gets sucked into one of these AI models, it actually trains it the wrong thing. Um, so it will not be the last of its kind, this tool, and there will be others. Um, and I'm hopeful that my colleagues in computer science and machine learning will jump into the fray and, and help create, uh, help protect human creativity against invasive use of AI. Jen, any, any last quick thoughts? Oh, on an individual level, it's really tough. Um, mostly, I, would, I often come back again to privacy and data protection that you know, without a strong privacy law at the federal level, there's very little we can do around kind of our data being scraped up and used uh, in in ways that we may not consent or authorize, and so uh, you know I always want to hit back on the be a good democratic citizen and and push your your elected representatives uh, to pass one the the uh, data privacy law that's been proposed. On a bigger level, I'll just say very quickly that you know one of the reasons why the big companies in the space are dominating is because they have access to data at a level that nobody else does. And so uh, we at Stanford have been pushing hard for more public investment in AI. More uh, public investment. We have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation, Jen King and Ben Zhao. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.